Welcome to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa, and on this podcast, I highlight the unspoken and unsung heroes who are changing the education game as we know it. Every day, I come across the work of so many incredible educators who simply don't get the recognition they deserve. So on this podcast, we will provide you, the audience, with an opportunity to learn the personal stories of these incredible educators and the specific elements that shape who they are in and out of the classroom. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome, y'all, to a brand new episode of Identity Talk for Educators Live, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Salfamensa. And if this is your first time tuning in to the podcast, I welcome you and I hope that you return for future episodes and new content on that Danny Talk Network. And if you are a returning listener or viewer of the podcast, I welcome you back. And I hope that today's episode is one that you find informative, enlightening, and of course, insightful. So before we introduce our newest guest, just a reminder for folks who are on YouTube, make sure you hit that red subscribe button so you can get future notifications for new episodes. Um, we're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast. So make sure you subscribe there as well, wherever that is. And for those who want to help us continue to build this identity talk network, we do accept monetary donations on both Cash App and Venmo. So if you're on Cash App, our handle is money sign ID talk for Ed. And if you are on Venmo, our handle is at Kwame SM. That's at symbol K-W-A-M-E-S-M. And to check out previous episodes of the podcast, you can go to our main website at identitytalkforeducators.com. Thank you kindly. So listen, y'all. Uh, today's episode is one that I am just so excited about because, I mean, obviously, I get excited for every guest who comes on this platform because they're just dope in what they do. But this brother that's coming on is somebody who is really inspiring a lot of school leaders and principals to to follow their gut especially in the midst of this great resignation, in the midst of COVID-19, where we've had a lot of educator turnover, not just teacher turnover, but overall educator turnover. We've seen principals resign and go into early retirement. We've seen the same trend with teachers, even some paraprofessionals. Uh, we've seen even pre-service teachers reroute their career trajectories and say, you know what, maybe... I need to go into a different profession or industry altogether. So the past three years, we've seen all that happening. But this brother has really been transparent about his journey. Uh, if you follow him on LinkedIn, you already have a sense of what I'm talking about in terms of just his health, in terms of some of the forces that have been imposed on him, in terms of just maintaining his effectiveness as a school leader, but also 
struggling to balance that life with being a father, being a family man, being a husband, uh, things that I myself have had to navigate and and create an equilibrium with uh, during my own educator career. So I'm, I'm excited. And also, you know, it's rare to have a Ghanaian-American, Nigerian-American talking on the same platform. You know, usually there's always beef, but I promise you this time around it's going to be all love. <laughs> but uh, without further ado, I want to bring on the good brother, Mr. Uche Ujoku, to the podcast to talk with us about his journey and and what he's doing now. So let's bring the brother on. Yes, sir. What's good? What's good? How you feeling? I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. Listen, I, I, I just want to start by saying one thing first. Nigerian jollof ice. That's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, <laughs> I was going to bring that up in the end, but you, you want to start with the heat already. Okay. Nah, nah we're we not going to do that, bro. We're not gonna okay. do that. We we all know no. where the best law rice is, but we'll we'll table that conversation for later. We'll table it. We'll table it. But man, it's it's good to have you on. So um for the listeners and viewers, just to give us a little context. I actually met Uche a few years back. It was at a Causebot conference in Detroit, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you know, I was out there, uh, selling books and, you know, sharing about, uh, my consulting company, which was pretty young at the time. Um, and I know you were out there still as a principal at your school in New York, uh, just being an attendee. So, uh, we connected for a brief moment and, you know, fast forward to, I don't know, three, four years later, here we are. <laughs> Here we are talking. So yeah, it's, it's good to be in the same space with you. And man, you I don't know, I don't know if you realize how many people you've inspired, uh, particularly on LinkedIn with your story and just your post. You know, you're so open, transparent, and and vulnerable um in your in your commentary. So uh we'll I guess we'll, we'll table that for later on, but before we get there, let's start from the beginning because before you were a teacher, you know, you're growing up um, Nigerian household. So we know how it is, West African household, how some of the traditions are and how that impacted our first generation experience. So talk to me a little bit about that and what brought you into the education field. Um, yes, first of all, again, thank you so much for this opportunity to be here, um, on identity talk. Um, and, uh, so what brought me to education? It's funny because I, I feel like I spent so much time trying to avoid education. Um, um, my family, I was born in Nigeria. My family came to, um, came to America, like many immigrant families for better opportunity. And, um, my first, like, like my first experience that that hit me hard was in school here in America. So you have to imagine coming to America from another country, you know, the accent, and this is the eighties. So you got all the jokes, African booty scratching and everything else. And for a lot of kids, the first impression of an African they ever had was from TV. This is the eighties. So this is when Ethiopia was going through its famine. So, you know, we are the world. That was what the world, the world, at least in America knew about 
African. So um, um, at that time, I think it was, I was either second or third. I, was third, I came like second grade, end of, end of second grade into third grade. And in third grade, um, I remember my teacher called my mom into school to talk to her. And she told my mother that I was, I mean, her words exactly, I will never forget, is that your, 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 your son um, is um, retarded. You know, but it wasn't as a as an insult. It's back then that was part of the canon of of um, of um, labels for for um, for students with disabilities. You know, so right. mental retardation. So at that point in time, I just remember being as a kid, just being like, okay, I heard kids using these using that term as an insult on the playground. So I'm looking at this teacher like, what's going on here? Mind you, I'm in third grade, about eight about eight years old. My mom, being West African, being you know, after an African woman period in, in a strange land, she sat there quietly and she took it in. And um, and I remember we got home and she, I think she called my uncle one of the cases. I remember her crying and, you know, because if you know anything about African families, we don't play with our kids. Our kids, that's, that, that is our purpose of existence. So um, to be told that something's wrong with your child, it's a big problem. And um, I think the next day I was in school, I was in a special classroom, you know, I was in, 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 in the world changed. You know, I was no longer in regular class. I was in special classes. We'd wrapped up the school year and my mother decided, you know, for, for reasons mostly having to do with just our economic space that we were in as a family at the time. And, um, and I'm sorry, this was in Los Angeles. This is where we moved to. And um, okay. these were tough. So my mom and dad decided that, you know, and again, a lot of African families know, a lot of immigrant families, a lot of African families know about this. My, my parents decided to split the family. Like, you know, our father would stay in America and we would go back to Nigeria because it'd be a little bit easier for us in Nigeria. And he would work and try to get things settled down for, and bring us back. We went to Nigeria and when we got there, um, mama, like I already had this label, like, you know, like, you know, it was already out there that something was wrong with me. So my mother decided like, listen, you know, we're gonna put you in school. Mind, mind you, Nigeria, there is no special ed classes. Nope. <laughs> Every kid is in regular classes, you know, and you either sink or swim. That's how it is. And I remember uh, by this time I'm, I'm in the fourth grade. And after the first um, set of exams, what they do is you get your grades and then they rank you. You know, they don't play. They rank you. They, they put your rank in front of for everybody. To oh, see. I've been there. Oh, yeah. So, you know, so out of, um, uh, I think like, it was like 44 kids or 43 kids, I was 42 or 43. I was the one kid above the kid in the bottom. And the last thing you want to do in Nigeria, people will ask you, what, what, play, what, what's your, what, what is your place in your, in your class? Yeah. And you want to be first, top 10. I was second to last. My mother was like, nope, we're not having this. So this woman, you know, took every additional resource we had and hired all my teachers to be my tutors at home. So all the teachers that I had, for, it was for the main three subjects, math, science, um, uh, history, and English, they came to my house, one on Monday, one on Tuesday, one on, one on Thursday, I'm sorry, one Wednesday, wow. one on Thursday, and sat and were there around through dinner, and tutored me every day. So it's bad enough I got to see these dudes <laughs> at school. Then they in my house eating our food too, but my mother was not. <laughs> she put, she 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 put everything everything she had in there. She fed these. My teachers were all men. So. And, and, and that's, that had a huge impact on me too. They were all men and she fed them, she paid them and they tutored me by the end of, um, um, fifth grade going. So that was fourth grade going to fifth grade. 
Uh, by the time I, I finished a primary five, I was number two in the class, you know, and I missed number one by one point. And what was interesting is um, the belief that my mother had in my abilities, that these teachers, these men who, they didn't, like, they didn't care what, what they said in America, like special, special what? You, you will learn how to write. You will learn how to read. You will learn how to do this math yeah. problems. And they pushed me through that. So um, at the end of our fourth grade, I, uh, um, we take the common interest exam. You know, I don't know if it's the same way in, in Ghana, but most countries that were under the British rule, you have the common interest exams. I yeah. Took the exam, scored really it's the high. same. Okay. So um, I took the exams and I ended up attending Air Force Military School in Nigeria, which at the point in time, it was the, the number one school in Nigeria. So I got into that school. So think about this. In third grade, I'm retarded. And now here, my, here I am going to high school um, or secondary school and I'm going to attend one of the top schools. And um, I was there for um, into my second year. Then my parents decided, okay, we're going to come back to America. I was given the choice to stay to stay in Nigeria. I finished my schooling, or go back to America. And I chose to come back with my family. So I came back here, and we ended up back in California. I went. Uh, we were in Ingle, in Inglewood, California, and um, I went to Latihara uh, Middle School um, um, to wrap. So okay, I went to Latihara Middle School. When I got there, they actually put me back. Because again, these stereotypes, you're coming from Africa, or whatever, so you might not you wow. you might not you might not be able to perform as well. So they put me back one year. So um I was in sixth grade, which I should have been going into, I should have been in the seventh. So they put me back in the sixth grade, um, which was form one in Nigeria. Uh, you know, form one. For second. Yep. So they threw me threw me there. And I remember sitting in class being very confused, like, why am I in this class? Like is this a joke? I felt like these kids I'm sitting with, they don't know how to do this stuff. So we're talking about like just math, especially math. So I remember one day, Miss Miss White, who was my math teacher, she's, um, so we do a long division in the classroom. So she's putting them the, 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 the division problems on the board. Sure. And you know this in Nigeria, you know your times table. Like if you don't know your times table, you, listen, you will be brutalized. <laughs> you better know. Mm -hmm. One times one, only to 12 times 12. But once you memorize that, you can do multiplicities of those numbers because it's just, you know, you know factors. So I'm, so I'm sitting in class doing these division problems and I'm just writing it on a paper. I'm not a genius. I just have the table memorized. So I, I can work it out in my head. And she mm -hmm. was like, um, why don't you show your work? Show your work. I didn't understand that. What do you mean show your work? Do I have the right answer? But in Nigeria, it's all about speed. But we'll see the work. You have the oh, right yeah. answer. And you yeah. explain how you get the answer. So I'm sitting there and um, she's like, she's first of all befuddled. Like, how is he doing the math problems? So she, she brushes another math problem on the paper. I'm like, I do it and get it right. So she grabs the textbook. The kids are all working independently and we start going through the book. Going through the book. And it took, it took about two days. And we went through the sixth grade book. We went through the seventh grade book. I didn't get stomped until we got into the eighth, like midway through eighth grade. And she was like, okay, um, you don't belong in this class. And that thing too in Nigeria, um, we're, we don't, first of all, we don't, we don't really have kindergarten. If your no. child is able to work, you start school. There's no barrier. Pretty There's much. No so technically based on my, I was already ahead. I was already, I was already like younger, a year younger or the same age as the kids in my class. But um, she's sitting and she's looking at the math problem. She's like, okay, you don't belong in this class, but 
the work shows that you should be in the eighth grade. So she called my father in. We spoke to um, the principal, Miss Miss uh, Washington, Miss Washington, um, um, who, you know, interestingly enough, was Michael Jackson's aunt. So Michael Jackson's brother was married to her daughter. So it's another weird, you know, coincidence. Wait, wait, so, the like the king. So yeah, so I think Randy. It was either Randy or Marlon. One of those two is married to to uh, my principal's daughter. So yeah. so um so yeah so um but so they bring my father in. They sat down there and they're like, you know, we're gonna move your son to the next to eighth grade. And you know, African parents, they're not asking like, so oh my God, what about his emotional state? He was like, of course, move him, move him, move him. Then so I the guess. next day, I'm in the eighth grade and I'm smaller, I'm younger by like a year and a half to two years than anybody else. And that was by, that was like, okay, this interesting path now is put in. So I literally, one day I was in the sixth grade, the next day I was in the eighth grade. Dang. And then, and and I think I had a semester left to graduate. So I graduated from, from middle school, gone to high school, and I did really well in high school, played football, um, and academically graduated top 10, I did really well. Um, applied to colleges, got into all the colleges I applied to, and um, went to the, um, I, I ended up going to University of, um, University of Rochester, upstate New York, and um, did my thing there. Um, it wasn't as, when I got to college, it wasn't as, it, the path wasn't as, as as straight as it was for a lot of people. I got to college and um, a lot of family issues and um, just also being really young, you know, and being away from home for the first time. I made a lot of poor choices and things like that. And um, I got to college and I started college in 1993. I didn't graduate, get my degree to 2000. So you can tell that's not four years. So I, I, at some point in time, I, had, I left college, went to the military. Because I was just, okay, I'm just going to put it out there. I was really messing up. <laughs> I was, I was, the freedom of being in college was, was way too much for me to handle. And, um, and what ended up happening was I got to the point where the college was like, listen, you know, academic probation, you might have to leave the school. And right. when, they talked to, when they told me about that, I was like, okay, I have two choices. I can go home and my father will kill me, but he will kill me. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, and I, so I was like, I can't go home. No, this man, no, I can't. So I opted to join the Marine Corps instead. How crazy is that? <laughs> like, I either go home with my father, have me, or I go to the Marine Corps. So I was That's real. Yeah, I was ordered to sign myself up. So those of you who are watching who, who, who have African parents or oh, you're African, you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And, don't play with and even I knew I had messed up. So I went to the Marine I went to the Marines. Fortunately, when I was there, um, unfortunately and, and unfortunately, but more fortunately, I got injured and uh, came back out. And um, that's more t- the short time in the Marine Corps really it's treating me out. Like you know, it tapped, it tapped into something in me. And I was like, okay, I gotta get, I gotta get, I gotta, I gotta get serious because again, mind you, this young kid in college who's wilding out, nobody's telling you what to do, and you you know you're partying and doing all these different things. You're in the Marines, and guess what? You're following orders. Okay. Structure yeah. is in me, you know, and I was, I was running away from my father because, because I knew for him it's all about structure. But then I thought going to the Marines was going to be like G.I. Joe going to go have some fun. Instead, what ended up happening is I got what my father would have given me for the Marine Corps. And I, and I came out and um, got myself back together, eventually graduated. And um, after I graduated, I went into corporate sales. Um, and a lot of it, and a lot of it was just um, me, just now as a man trying to figure out, figure out my life. 
I did well in corporate sales, um, but then I was like, you know what? I don't. I didn't feel satisfied in that in that space. Because again, being African and you, having parents who expect one of three things from you: doctor, doctor, engineer. engineer. Yep. <laughs> and for my father, my father threw in pilot in there. You know, both, when I was in military school, he was like, you could become a pilot. But those three things and. It's funny how much of that is, is really ingrained in you because it's this notion of I had to succeed on a high level. And I didn't feel like I was succeeding on a high enough level to make my parents proud of me. So I decided I was going to go, go uh, I was going to do law school. So I applied to law school. I got to a law school in, in California and uh, I would, they would, they would remain unnamed because it's a good school. But what happened was my family was like, you're not going to go there. That's trash. So I don't want to disrespect anyone who went to that law school. In my opinion, it's a really good school. But my parents were like, no, 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 no. If you're going to go to law school, it got to be the UCLA's, USC's, the Stanford's. Like, you know, it has to be something of excellence. Sure. So um, my aunt was an attorney, is, is an attorney. And she was like, listen, this is what you're going to do. You're going to take the LSATs again. We're going to have to create a plan. And we're going to get you into one of those top tier schools. But she's like, but in the meantime, you got to do something that sets you apart in service to the, the community. And the corporate working, my corporate job wasn't really service to my community. It was me making money. So she was like, um, it could be anything. And I was like, you know, what about teaching? And again, for me, it, was, it just sounded good. Like, you know, teaching in the community, people see, sure. like, you know, how much, it's a great, humble thing to do. So at the time, LA was not hiring. There was a hiring free in Los Angeles. And, um, and I had, and I had, I, I'm a little bit OCD. When I have something in my head, I have to think, I have to run through that thing. So I decided, okay, um, I got to find somewhere to teach. You know, I had gone to college in New York. I had friends in New York. And one of my friends said, hey, they're hiring teachers in New York City. It's a shortage. And there's a problem called New York City Teaching Fellows. You know, you should apply for it. I'm like, I bet. I applied for it. I didn't get in. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm, <laughs> I guess I'm just going to try to find something else to do. And uh, I remember I had, gone, I had gone to D.C. with my family for, uh, I, it was like an African family, family reunion for, for sure. our community. It was happening in D.C. And I went there, had a great time, came back, came back in the mail. It was a letter from the teaching fellow saying, hey, yeah, we didn't accept you the first time around, but would you still be interested? And I was like, heck yeah, you know, because it's part of the plan. I'm going to be teaching. So um, within two weeks of getting that letter, I was in New York City. Uh, and honestly, in my head, it was all about law school and teaching was going to be that thing on my resume that was going to get me to USC or UCLA or Stanford. Sure. And, uh, and uh, I came to New York and, um, you know, in the teaching fellows, it's a great program. It takes people from other, other career fields and to, to fill in the gap uh, of, that, of, that, um, of that short in teacher and in that shortage of teachers. So I... Um, I get in, I start interviewing at schools, but they don't place you. You still got to go in for interviews and teachers, principals have to hire you. Sure. And I remember uh, uh, Scott Goldner, principal at, the principal at uh, Discovery High School in the Bronx, you know, and um, wherever, you, wherever you are, Scott, thank you so much because you put me on a path that I didn't imagine for myself. We interviewed and, uh, and I was supposed to be a special ed teacher, you know, in the Bronx. And at the end of my interview, he said, listen, I like you. I'm going to give you a position. But he said to me, I look at you, I see your resume. You were in the Marines, right? I was like, yes. He was like, okay, how do you feel about discipline? I was like, it's necessary. He's like, okay, I have a little problem here. My AP is going to turn and leave. 
and I need a dean. And I didn't even know what a dean was. I knew what a dean was in California. But in California, we didn't have deans in California. So I, I said, what does that mean? He's like, no, you're going to be handling discipline for the school. I was like, but bro, you know, I'm a first year teacher, right? <laughs> like, like, I know nothing. Uh, the last time I was in, the, in, in, in a high school, I was a student. So I know nothing about that. He was like, nah, you get a hang of it. You're in the Marines, you can handle this. And he made me his dean. So my first day on the job, I was a dean of a high school. And he, told, he, he also told me, don't tell anybody. He was like, don't tell anybody. They don't, they don't need to know that you're a first-year teacher. I was like, what is going on here? But it was like all the stars aligned itself. Mind you, I was a special ed kid who, who was told, I was a kid who was told that he was special ed, that he needed a lot of supports. And then I was also the same kid who, who got the supports and proved anybody wrong. Um, served in the military. And, um, don't, and the most important part, I grew up in LA, in the and this is the '80s and '90s. Oh yeah, and Crips and gang bang and all that. So Rodney I played King, football. all that. I, I was listen. I was I was in high school. Um, was my 11, the LA riots. I was there for it was my 11th grade year. I was yeah. right in the middle. Of it. My mother owned an African store in the Crenshaw district. Oh wow. So, so yeah, all that that was like that was my world. So here I am in in, in the Bronx now, and at a, at this high school. And um, the first thing they told me is there's a gang problem here. We have a serious gang problem. And I was like, okay, so tell me more. They're like, yeah, between the Bloods and the Crips and the Latin Kings. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You got Bloods and Crips in the same building? How's that possible? Because again, I'm from LA. Bloods and Crips run entire neighborhoods. My high school was all, was all Bloods. So I didn't, like this whole notion of like gangs mixing each other, but it was a blessing that, that I grew up in LA because here I am as a dean of a school where there's a gang problem. And if, as soon as the kids heard Mr. Njoku is from LA, when I told you, I had kids sitting around me in my office as though I was like the oracle of gangs. <laughs> they were like, Mr. Tell us about LA. And it's funny how their need to really under, to really uh, further live into that lifestyle of being gang bang, of gang banging allowed me to get into their heads and talk to them about like, yo, but that's not necessary. So right. as a dean, my, the way I grew up ended up aiding me in, in really building relationships and moving the school forward. And from that point, um, I became a little bit of a celebrity in my in that building. People didn't understand how our incidences went from like being 400 a year before to being less than 150 the following year. And it kept up going down. And from there, that first job as a dean, I had, an, I had a principal who reached out to me and said, listen, um, I really want you to come to my school. I see what you did over here. I think you can help me over here. And circumstances allowed for me to move to that school. And that principal um, became the principal who made me an AP, you know, four years later. And from that point, my career just kind of like went went to the moon. You know, I was a, wow. a convoy that ended up going to Columbia for my, you know, the kid who, was a special ed kid and dropped out of college. Really, I dropped out of college to go to the military. Ended up at teaching college, Columbia University, get my master's in, in leadership, and and here I am now. You know, my career just went. I know that was a long story, but you can't ask me that. You can't ask me how you got here because it's it's really complex. You know, but uh, yeah, man, brother, there's so many parallels between your journey and mine because you know both my parents they're from Ghana. Um, I grew up in the states. And attended school from kindergarten to sixth grade in the States. 
I started my first four years as a student with an IEP. So I was in the self-contained special education classroom. So I dealt with the same issues you did. I knew I was smarter than most. But, you know, I had some learning challenges, but not to the extent where I should have been in that placement. And my mother was my advocate. She was the one who was going to the IEP meetings, um, telling the teachers and the departments what intervention she was putting in place because whatever they were doing at the school was not effective and wasn't bringing the results that was needed. But then when my mom was working with me, that's when all that changed. So um, what's, what's crazy is I eventually get mainstream by the time I get to fifth grade. After sixth grade, I moved to Ghana with my family. And I did form one through three in Ghana and even took the, um, the basic education certificate exam, the BC. So that's like the entry exam to go into high school, which they call SSS, Senior Secondary School in like West Africa, right? Um, I come back and literally I go to this predominantly white school where the principal is trying to put me in a special education classroom because they, they figure, oh, you're from Africa. You must be behind. So the, the bias kicks in right there. My mom's trying to tell him that I used to go to school in America. So I already know the system. I'm not new to the system. I just took some time away to be in Ghana. And so even though they didn't make me stay back, I ended up taking general classes as opposed to honors classes, AP classes. So that's how they demoted me by putting me in like the lower, the lowest possible level of classes that's mainstream. And I had to work my way back to where I was supposed to be. So it was, uh, nah, it was crazy. But everything you said about being in West Africa, the testing, the rankings, I was in a class of 50 students. I was in the middle of the pack. There was a relegation line for those who, if you were, by, if you were below that relegation line, your behind was in trouble. And, yeah. and they, they would cane you. They, they they would cane you too. Every teacher had a cane at that time. <laughs> Mid to late 90s, every teacher had a cane. Or here in the States, if you're in the South, you probably call it a switch. They had it. Every teacher had that back when I was um, going to school there. We had uh, what it called, uh, houses called it koboko. Koboko, which was a leather, It was a leather whip. They used to whip donkeys. Yes. And they, they uh, used to take that to, 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 our, to our behinds. And sometimes to our heads. Mm. Like, you know, so it, was, it was crazy. Yeah. But we're not going to bring all that up because that's just <laughs> triggering. I know it is for me when I bring it up, but it's yeah. real. And being here in Sierra Leone, a lot of these things still happen today, even though there's um, anti-corporal punishment laws that are in place here. There's still teachers who are old school, and they'll they'll beat on their students if they get a wrong answer to a question, which is uh, traumatizing, especially when you think about social-emotional learning, which is now something that they're talking about here, but they're still very much behind in those conversations. And and implementing that in schools, but that's that's a whole nother conversation. I I do want to talk about just your time as a principal, um, because there are a lot of things that principals go through when they're leading their schools. So just thinking to your experience, 
what do you believe are some of the common errors that school leaders make when they're leading their schools that can get them into trouble? So, okay, I, I just heard two questions. What are the most common mistakes that school leaders make when they're leading their schools? And yeah, that's, that's the question. They can lead them into trouble. But I feel like those are two different things. Okay, the first, the first question. Okay, so you have to have a very strong, and for me, this is non-negotiable, a very strong sense of your educational philosophy. You know, when you go through um, leadership programs, that's one of the first courses you take, talking about educational philosophy, even in, in, in teacher education programs. But that's a real thing. What is it that you believe in education? Because once you go in that school, you have the power to shift a whole entire community in either the right direction, the wrong direction, or in no direction, you know? And a lot of that comes down to what is it that you believe yourself about what your responsibility is and what do you want to see for that community? And too often I come across school leaders that, that have, that, that literally don't have that. All they know is this, this is my job. And for me, if you are leading a school because this is, no, it, I'm sorry. If you are working in a school and, and you're the principal and it's your job, you should not be a principal. That's my personal opinion. You should not be a principal because being a being being in education and leading a school community is not a job. I like to me, it's it is your work. Right. The same way in the Bible it says, um, if a man does not work, he should not eat. That level of this is what you do, who this who you are, that's very, very important coming into a school space. And a lot of educators don't do that. They come in there and they're like, okay, I'm waiting for central office, I'm waiting for the district to tell me what to do. You know, and again, I'm you should not, you should, I mean, if you want to keep a job, you want to definitely make sure you're in alignment with the, with, with your with the district or system policies. But you as an individual, you have, the, you have the power to bring something to a school community that is uniquely you. Because when, you, when, you're, when, the, when, when you're the principal, that's what people say. Hey, that's Uche school. Okay? I've, I've never owned a school in my life, but that's the perception. It is your school. You know? mm-hmm. I remember the other day I was driving past my, um, my first school as principal at. In, in the Bronx, I was driving by and there's this huge banner. It's like 60 by 30. I mean, it's crazy. It's the size, the size of the building. And I drove by and I smiled because I was the one who had that banner put up. And people told me, told me I was crazy. And I was like, because I need the community to know what did we stand for as, as a school that's in your neighborhood. So right. the mission and vision of the school is plastered there very clearly. Guess what happened in the next year? There was a line outside the door of parents trying to get the kids into the school. Wow. For me, branding was very important. For me, making sure that student head voice was very important. What we were doing for our black and brown boys, and that was why you, you, you saw me at Coast Bar, very important, you know, because I was, I was a black boy who went through nonsense in my education as a child. So those things are very, very important to me. So um, every year as a principal, every school I've, that I've led, I've led two schools, even as an AP, I had a very strong sense of like, this is what we're here to do, you know? And I made sure my community, my, my staff knew this, my parents knew this, and my superintendent knew this, you know? Because I wasn't waiting for them to tell me. I was like, this is what I'm doing. And 100% of the time, they were like, oh, we got you. But I had that strong sense. But a lot, of, a lot of school leaders, they get scared. What if I'm wrong? Okay, what if they're wrong? But if you go on lead, 
It's like going, it's like in the military, go to, into battle. You don't, you don't go into battle scared and say, oh, maybe That's this right. plan might not work. You go in there, you could be committed, like, okay, we're boarding the, we're boarding the boats. <laughs> you know, we're, we're here. So we, there's no other option but to win this battle. And that's that's a sense that um a lot of school leaders um a lot don't have. And 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 it's not because they can't do it. It's fear, you know, it's fear a lot of times. And and some some and there's some leaders out there who've been burnt doing that. But for me, is I wouldn't do it any other way. Like for me, if I'm in as a leader, I have to have a very strong strong sense. And if you think about this, those schools that have those legendary school leaders, the school where the school ends up being named after that principal. It's because that person did something that was unapologetic and saying, no, this is who we are going to be. And that's something that's very, very important that a lot of leaders um, need. I would like to see more leaders living in that space. That's how you change systems. And that's how you empower communities. Yeah. I think the misconception that's out there about a lot of school leaders is that you have to not shake the status quo. You have to just play it safe in order to stay in that principal seat. So when you mentioned fear, what immediately comes to my mind is just all the tests that we do. You know, you're in New York, so you're probably looking at regents and how students are performing. And that may even play a role in whether or not you still maintain a job as a principal. And that's part of your criteria that shows whether or not you're being effective in your role. So do you feel like a lot of the fear comes from expectations set by districts, um, superintendent and other uh, higher officials? That's a good question. Whether the fear is, is stems from, from those external expectations. But the thing is, those expectations are always going to be there. Sure. They're going to be there. You know, I'm going, to speak, I'm going to speak for high schools across the country because, because for middle elementary schools, it varies a little bit, you know, but for high schools, it's generally the same. How do you, how is a, a, a good high school identified generally across the country? Graduation rate. That's right. You know, not, not necessarily how, how literate the kids are, how many of them are graduating. Okay, let's be honest here. I know for a fact there are systems across the country that fudge those numbers. Let's be honest here. I could give kids the, the most basic of classes and just make sure they just do the best minimum and pass with 65s to graduate. Oh, you're right. But I give I, and listen, I'm gonna give you a real example. And you can look this up. You can call the school right now. John Jay School for Law, the school I was principal of last year. Coming out of the pandemic, coming back that one year coming back out of the pandemic into the building. 100% of our graduating seniors got into college. 100% of our graduating seniors. You know, and let, me, let me qualify that. College or some post-secondary institution, but there were some kids who got into trade schools. And that's what, this way they, they wanted to go. And let's be honest, sometimes the kids going to trade schools end up becoming our bosses. <laughs> because oh, real they, talk. Real talk. But the thing was, my, my expectation was I was very like very clear to my college counselor. I was very clear to the senior staff. I was clear to the students and their parents. I don't want to hear, I'm not applying to college. You will apply to college. 
and you will get in. If it's a community college, if it's if it's if it's if it's a if it's, if it's NYU, if it's city college, it doesn't matter what it is, you will get into college. Um, but no, that expectation also is standing upon the belief that my kids are capable and able to get into those institutions, which is. means I'm standing on the belief that my teachers are doing their jobs to educate my students so they're capable of applying again to those colleges. They also believe that that is also now understanding on the foundation. My teachers are on the same page with me and believe that this is what we want for our kids in the school. So now name one district superintendent or or district person or someone from central who's gonna be like, oh Uche, you're wrong with that. We don't want that to happen. So I didn't wait for them to come tell me that this is what we need, we need to do. If anything, a lot of school systems around the country were saying, coming out of the pandemic, we gotta be softer and nicer. The kids are going have gone through a lot. Yeah, we all went through a lot. But it doesn't change the fact that once they graduate, they have to go into a world that's still the world that killed George Floyd. Mm. The world still, you know, in the, we, we, that we still have to say Black Lives Matter. That's right. So my thing is, this: I got to make sure that they, I tell my students all the time, my job is my job is to make sure that you leave the school with the tools that you need to conquer. I don't need you to survive it. And you go out there and conquer, make a place for yourself in this world. You know, so, so that belief, anyone can have that belief. And yes, the fear, but I'll tell you just one thing about the fear. The fear is the same fear that we all have when we start a new job. When That's we right. come into a new Experience. You know, but then my question is, why do some people who come, we all come in, when you start a new job, a new space, you move to a new country, there's that sense of like, oh, man, this is, this is anxiety, right? But some people thrive and some people just go back, pack their bags and go back home. There's something in you that has to say, listen, I got it. Like, listen, this is non-negotiable for me. You know, my belief is so strong what needs to happen right now. And that's the thing. We have to stop allowing um, the system to be the reasons that we don't do what we need to do. And, and I'll tell you one thing that, that I said my whole entire career. Um, I believe strongly, I, I believe so much in what I do that I'm willing to get fired because I'm good with getting fired if I know what I'm doing is the right thing. That's right. You know, if you're gonna fire me because I'm, I'm, because I'm doing some, some dumb nonsense, okay. That's on me. That's my fault. Like, for example, the example I gave, I was like 100% of my kids are going to go to college. I go, no, they're going to get accepted to college. Let me, make sure I make sure that was very clear. They're going to get accepted. Because I told my students, I need you to have a choice. Graduating with, with no college, no job, no nothing, that's not a choice. But you, got, you, you have the college letter of acceptance, that's a choice. I had kids who said, you know what, mister, I'm going to the military. All right. But what were your choices? Um, the Army, Penn State, <laughs> you know, it's a bunch of other colleges. So if you decide you're going to go to the Army, I'm not mad at you. You made, you you had all the options in front of you. And you were like, you know what, right now, I'm not, I don't think I'm ready for college. So I, I spoke to them, and they're going to defer my acceptance for a year or two. So I'm going to go to the Army. Oh, I, can't be mad at that. I can't be mad at that. But the most important thing is that I remember when I, when I sat down with my AP, who's now, who's now the principal, and I was like, bro, this is this is gonna be this is this is the vision for this year for my senior class. Because not only that, it's gonna make a statement to all the other kids who are gonna be like, wait a minute, we just came out of a pandemic and all of them got into college. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So fear is always going to be there, but what you're going to do, but what are you going to do beyond uh, to to get past it? Man, you you preaching, brother. But the one part that you really got me with was the fact that you know we we know why we got into education. We knew going into this field that there were going to be challenges. We knew that the pay wasn't going to be what it was going to be. We knew that we would have to deal with some parents that could be challenging. We know that there are some forces within our school systems that can make our jobs more difficult than they should be. These, this is no knowledge before we even step foot into the classroom, at least for you and I. So when these things happen, it's no surprise. I, I think about uh, Abbott Elementary. If people follow Abbott Elementary, when they talk about how, you know what, you know, we, we don't get the all the facilities and all the resources, that's but we find a way. We persist because we believe in the kids. We do what's best for the kids. And that's what I'm hearing in your message is just that, okay, they're not going to give us this. We don't have that. We still have to maintain high expectations, not only for the kids, but for us as professionals, because if we don't set the example, our kids don't have a template that will allow them to thrive in whatever they decide to do. And I'm going to add one more thing to that. Yes. So, uh, and I, and I know that you, you, you don't feel me on this one. Our ancestors. Come on. They had to do to, Come to on. even allow us to be where we are right now. Yes. Man, the man whose name is my last name, Njoku, was one of four brothers during colonial times. And it's, it's funny, the things that he did then is, is still legendary to this day. Who mm. refused to bow to the queen? Who refused to let to let the colonizers like tell him how he was going to be? He was known as a troublemaker. So to this day, whenever you hear the, the Njoku family, the Njoku clan in our community in, in Nigeria, they're like, "Oh, that's that trouble. That's that trouble. That trouble family." And the, <laughs> I, I never knew what it was. It's big, and until my uncle explained, told me the story. Like, no, no, that was your great, 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 great grandfather who was wilding. And then guess what? You stand here because of him, my brother. In this country. School for Black Folk was under a tree mm-hmm. in the woods. This was illegal. So for me, to sit in a classroom with a smart board with seats and everything there, and, and also know the things that are still happening here, like, like it's not just about getting the diploma. It's not just about graduating. It's about a response to a historical wrong that's still happening. And that's what, to me, that's what education is. It's a response yes. to a historical wrong. You know, so like, I don't like, I mean, I don't play with that. Like I tell my students, I mean, I, I don't have students anymore to tell, but I've always told my students, you have to understand why are you here and what the, who did what, who did what they had to do to create the path for you to one day be staying in this classroom. But once upon a time, and not too long ago, it was illegal. It was a matter of law for you to learn how to read and write. And, and, those are the, and, and so, so for me, it's like, I'm, like, I'm getting amped right now because for me, it's like, it's visceral in my, in my body. You know, like, I'm just like, yeah. You know, and, and what you said, as men, as black men as well, let me tell you something about leadership. And no, no, as teachers, um, there is no denying that when I was offered to be a dean, that my parents had a big part to do with it. 
They had to have had that part. <laughs> and I don't think that that principle was in, did it intentionally, but his he thought he probably thought you know, okay, this this black man, black you know, man. kind of rocky, you know, yep. military, yep. you know, and he can keep this kids in check. And, but at, at that point in time, I didn't see it that way. I just thought to myself, wow, I'm, I'm being given this opportunity. But now within, with context, I'm like, wow, I was the, um, how, how you, how, what was that role in the plantation? It was like, let's, let's get the, the biggest blackest of them all, give him a little, a little bit of power to control his own people. So for me, you know, um, when, when, when I realized that, I was like, wow. I gotta be very careful about how I move in these spaces. And because I have to understand there's a perception about me that, that I can never shake off. Mm-hmm. You know? So since I can't shake shake that perception off, every time I'm given an opportunity to lead because we need him to control those children. You know what I do when I get when I get in there? I empower those children. There you go. You know, I had a I had a professor my first year as a teacher who told me your responsibility as an educator. He said, and she said to me, Uche, and this is a white woman, she said, Uche, your responsibility as an educator is to be a subversive. And I was like, what you mean by subversive? She was like, there's a lot of things they want you to do, but you're going to do what, what's right. Mm. Not what they want you to do. That's a jewel. That's a jewel right there. Ooh. Man, this is probably going to end up being a, a top 10 episode. When it's all said and done, I already feel it. Um, but the reference you were making to our ancestors not being able to read or write—I mean, we're seeing a new version of Jim Crow right now as we speak, with books being banned, our history still being whitewashed—not just for black and brown people, but for other people of color as well. You feel what I'm saying? It's still happening. So now I want to transition into. What led you to ultimately leave your principalship? Because you were affected for many years and you clearly had a love for the children. So then what changed? Like what ultimately pushed you to to resign from, from that? There were a few factors. Um and I don't want I don't want to sound I don't I don't want to come off sounding cocky in saying this. Sure. I have to speak my truth. Um, I came into education uh, in 2005. Mind you, the intention was to do a two-year commitment, then go to law school. Very, very simple. But as God would have it, I found I found my purpose in within the space of education, which I, I mean, this, I guess that's not what happens when you find your purpose. You're just like, whoa, this is this is this feels right. And then after that, from 2005 to 2022, 17 years, 17 years, six schools in two different states, um, literally thousands of students um, that I've been connected to, hundreds of, of teachers. I am proud to say that I've functioned on a high level from the moment I came into the, to, to the New York State Department of Education for 17 years. I didn't do like, you know, I was in the classroom quiet and just kind of like figuring myself out. I was thrown in front street from day one and I just went hard. You know, I've taken guns from kids. I've pulled kids back into the building as I saw somebody running on the street shooting. I've had, I've had 
grown men run up on me, run into my playground, trying to uh, face off with, the, with one of my students. And I'd step in front of them like, bro, what you doing? You know, and they're gonna find out the person's armed. You, I saw the gun from the, from the and waist belt. I'm just thinking to myself, all right, I got, I, I got to manage the space right now because I don't have the space to call the police or anything like that. So right now I got to handle this to protect this child. And this is what I've, I've been doing for so many years. At the same time, it's not all negative. I've had students who've clerked in the Supreme Court. I've had students who are pharmacists and who are doctors and who are parents who have their own children. You know, I had a young lady who once came to me, um, my second year as a teacher and said to me, yo, mister, I'm a blood now. You know, and I looked at her and said to her, yo, blood, what you mean by it? She's like, yeah, I got put on. And I sat with her and had a heart to heart conversation. Telling her how disappointed I was because of what I saw for her, for her, you know, in the short time I had known her, I didn't see her for a week. And when I saw her again, she had a black eye and a busted lip. I was like, what happened to you? I was like, you got jumped? She's like, nah, the, you know, they jumped me. They, no, she did get jumped. And she didn't, she got, she got jumped out of the gang, out of the, out of the bloods. I like, what? And she was like, what you said to me stayed, stayed stuck in my head. And I told her I couldn't do it. And I was like, that's crazy. So you took a beating to get back out. Those, all these little spaces of 17 years of just working on a, a feverish pitch to make sure that my kids and my communities with an S were being served. At some point in time, I opened my eyes and I was like, I'm married. I have two babies of my own. A two, right now, my son's two and a half years old, my daughter's four. And I'm still moving at a feverish pitch. I leave the house when it's dark. I come home when it's dark. The many days I come home, my children are still, like, I didn't see them in the morning. By the time I get home, they're already in bed. And I have to ask myself, for, for the, all these of me being effective as a leader in a school, I need to be effective in the lives of my own children. Right. But not only this, I've always been a believer. As a, as a leader, it is my responsibility to build other leaders. So my first school in the Bronx, where I was a principal, was middle school, was the middle school, MS um, um, 318. I'm sorry, IS 318. When I decided to leave that school to go become a high school, to go become a high school principal, my AP, you know, one of, the, one of the best leaders I've ever worked with, stepped in, running that school, and doing an amazing job. Now that I decided, like, you know what, it's time for me to step away from being a principal so I can, I can explore other things, because I'm still in education. But the, the level of commitment is required for me to be an effective principal is taken away from my family. And I had to, I had to make, it, make a decision in the best interest of Musa and Nua and Joku, my son and my daughter. And, and I did, and, and I have no regrets making that decision. But that's what I had to do. But at the same time, there's one other thing that, um, that I, couldn't, I wasn't able to articulate at the time that I'm able to better articulate now. When I came into education, I was so many other things. You know, I was a, I was a former soldier, I was in corporate sales, then there's other things. I was, I've, I've, always, been, I've always loved technology, I've always been an, uh, a little bit of an of, of artist, all these different things that, that, that defines Uche. After 17 years, I became very like just you know, especially when I got to the principal role, just being a principal. And even though I did good at it, I, I feel like there's so much more that I can do. But for me to do those things, I have to now explore other spaces. And um, 
And so between the family and then also just saying like, what else can I do out here? Outside of the building, because I've been a dean, I've been an AP, I've been a teacher, you know, I've, I've been in Tehran teams. You know, I went to Columbia. You know, I, was, I just finished this year as a, as a confo. You know, I was a great fellow. I've done all these different things. But it has to be more than just what's in the, within the walls of, of the school building. And, um, and a big part of it now is me exploring those spaces. You know, and, and I'll be honest with you, people ask me all the time, do you miss the, the building? I say, I, I do miss it because I, I've had great memories there. But it's no longer my time. You know, there are, other, there are other leaders that need to step up and 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 I can pass the torch to, and I, which I have to, I have passed the torch to, you know, and I and are going to do phenomenal work. So now I can do other things. I'm I'm 46 years old, you know. I I, I still have a lot of time, God willing, to do other to do other things. But I have to, I have to give myself permission to go explore these other things. And too often, the principals get pigeonholed and are told that if you leave, your school building is going to fall apart, that the community is going to right. fall apart. You leave, you're, you're selfish. Okay, let me mm-hmm. be selfish. Because to, I can tell you this right now, the new principal, he doesn't feel like I'm being selfish, you know, because now he has a chance to now, to, to now move the school forward himself, you know? You know, it's one of those situations where you, you, you're not going to win in every, you know, it's, there's always going to be somebody out there who's going to say, well, you know, what you did was inconsiderate to the school community. But the, at the end of the day, 17 years, I've done a lot. I, bro, I've done a lot. I've done, <laughs> listen, like I could tell, listen, I did, right now it just pops in my brain. I remember the one day I was in school in my office, one of the rare times, rare times that I was eating, rare. Like eating, people would just be like, Mr. Njoku, you eat? <laughs> we don't have to see you eat. You're always running around. I'm in my office. I had a salad. A kid ran into my, into my office and said, Mr. Njoku, Mr. Njoku. I was an assistant principal at the time. <sighs> She's dying. I was like, what's going on? You know, I came, jumped up. This girl ran down the hall, ran behind her, ran into a room. And this young lady was on the floor. She's having a full seizure. Blood everywhere, like blood everywhere. Oh, I didn't no. know where it was coming from. And you know, you know, you know, you know, um, bloodborne contagion training we all, we all have to go through, right? At that moment in time, I'm seeing a child. I'm not asking for no for no gloves. I'm just like, yo, this is somebody's baby. This is one of my students. So I'm, I pick her up and I put my finger in her mouth to make sure her tongue is not, it didn't bite. Like I'm trying to figure out what the, then I'm wearing, I'm wearing a white button-down shirt and tie covered in blood, her blood, you know? But in that moment, I'm like, this is my purpose. This is, mm. I'm not telling somebody, her mother that we just stood there and did nothing because we were afraid of blood, you know? So thank God she was fine. What happened, she, had, she was eating pizza and when the seizure hit, she was a, uh, a seventh grader. And her, she had chin, her head fell down to the table, but her chin. So the blood was everywhere. She was shaking, the blood was everywhere, you know? But that was, that's, 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 that's 17 years of many stories like that. So for me, I, I didn't walk away from education. You know, if you see in my videos where I say, I quit, I always put a question mark because I'm like, like people always say, You just never know when. You never know. You might want to come back. You just never know. You leave the door open. And the thing, the thing too is this, my path is a path like, again, if you had told me in 2005 I'll be a principal, I'd have been like, you lying. 
If you had told me in 2004, I'd be a teacher, you're lying. You know, our path is like, I'm, I'm a man of faith and God will direct every step we take. And I really believe that. And wherever I'm needed is where I'm going to be, you know, and right now where I'm at, there's a new, there's a new mission for me and I, and I feel it and it's formulating, you know, so I have no, no worries about leaving, um, but I didn't leave. I didn't leave. If, if, listen, bro, if you know how many people still call me, ask me, hey, what would you do about this? What would you do about that? What would you do about this? You know, bro, um, remember that you had that problem in your school? How did you do that? To this day, yesterday, I was on the phone yesterday morning at, at 4.45 talking to a, um, to a um, principal intern working on her paper because I'm, I'm also coaching, I'm also coaching principal interns at Columbia. You know, like I can't really walk, walk away because again, I said, Education in education, I find my purpose, but now I'm exploring other angles of that purpose. Mm. It's, it's not always going to be in the classroom or in the school building. You know, education is ex 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 expansive. It's all there's all these points in education you can influence that, that actually ultimately influence what happens in the building. Preach, preach, preach. And I see as you're doing a lot of different things after resigning. Uh, one of which is your podcast. So before we get into lightning round and close things out, I want to give you a chance to talk about the sneaker principle. So what can people know about the podcast and what inspired it? So um, the sneaker principle podcast um, was, was, was born April of 2020. Is it April? No, I'm sorry, not April. Why do I keep saying April? It's not April. It was um no no it was April no it was April it was my son was oh, born right in March start of pandemic yes my, my son was born March third two weeks later there was no more school everybody was virtual we were trying to figure out what was going on and um for somebody who was like I'm up early in the morning out the building running around all day long to be sitting in a house in front of a computer my anxiety was like at, at level ten and um and. I had been exploring with YouTube. I was doing, I was creating content on YouTube around financial literacy and stuff like that and credit cards and like stuff, just like me, you know, I, I didn't share this part. In college, I, um, I majored in, I, I my degree in film and media studies. So I've always been heavy into technology, into media. So, um, so I was playing with YouTube, you know, uh, for about two years off and on. So um, during the pandemic, I, I found myself listening to a lot of podcasts. You know, like in the morning, I was just have it in my ear or some doing work, whatever the case is in the house. And I was like, you know what? This is kind of cool. This podcasting thing is kind of cool. And um, I just like, you know, you know, you know, when you sit in the house and you have, you have a little bit of money and a lot of time in your hands, I'm like, okay, I need a mic, right? So I was buying a mic. I need this. <laughs> I got this. I got different things together. And um, and I was like, you know what? This is my side project. I'm going to start a podcast. And I had a friend of mine who had told me that, you know, uh, about a year or two prior that like you're, you're the sneaker principal because um, I do have my, my one major vice are sneakers, you know, grew up in LA and not being able to afford this and Jordans and all that stuff was not happening. All my kids, all my shoes when I was in high school and in middle school was from Payless shoe store. And thank God I played football. And I was kind of swole. So I was like, yo, say something, <laughs> you know, I'm going to, I'm going to rock my Payless. <laughs> and um, so, you know, um, being an adult, having a little bit of money, you know, a little bit more, for, you know, um, uh, access to extra funds, you know, I, 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 buy, I buy a lot of sneakers. So a lot of my kids, you know, you, they knew me for my, for my, what was on my feet. So 
this friend of mine was like, you're the sneaker principal. So that became kind of a moniker for me. And I started this podcast. And then I was like, okay, what am I going to do with this podcast? It's called a sneaker principal. I'm not going to talk about sneakers on a podcast. And my wife was the one who was like, you know what? You should like interview your friends who are in education because you're, you're, you're the principal. Oh, you know, so I, I started like reaching out to friends of mine who were in education, who you know, some of them were principals from other states and just kind of interviewing them here and there. And it kind of took a life of its own. You know, um, it, it didn't really have any real structure. And because again, I didn't think it, I wasn't really taking it seriously. It was kind of like, I'm just doing you know, whatever comes to mind, you know, and during the pandemic, I had so much more time to be consistent with it. And um, I remember things got interesting when um, a friend of mine said, hey, um, you know, David Banks? I'm like, yeah, I know David Banks. I'm like, yeah. He was a principal in my, in, in my, one of my old buildings that, that I was, one of the schools I worked with, we shared a building with Eagle Academy, one, which is, the, you know, the school that David Banks founded, uh, um, the Chancellor of New York City. So yeah. he was like, hey, David Banks, um, I, talk, I talked to him about you. I and mean, he, he wouldn't mind being on your podcast. I was like, why would he want to be on my podcast? Like, what are you talking about? This is, this is like bootleg. He's like, nah, you know, he might be the next chancellor. So, you might, you know, it might not be a bad thing. And I was like, okay. So he was in a podcast and, um, and I was like, and people were like, yo, how'd you get this man in your podcast? I was like, I have no idea. Like, again, I, th- I always say God's grace. And sometimes things just happen. And, um, and, um, and that was right around the time we, we, we got to school and everything else. And I'll be honest with you, things, you know, um, I, I made a couple more episodes, um, focusing really on education. And then um, at the end of this past school year in June, um, I got him back on the podcast again. And I saw him at an event and I joked around. I was like, hey, I was like, Mr. I was like Chancellor Banks, when are you going to be, when are you going to click on the podcast? And he was like, brother, whenever. And I was like, I, come on, bro. I'm, I'm just playing. You're the Chancellor now. I can't have you on the podcast. And he, he did it. He got back on there. And, but then that happened around the same time I was, I was, I was wrapping my career up. I was, I was, it was very clear that it was coming to, the end, to an end. So uh, since since that episode, really, I think I did maybe one or two episodes, and I've been in waiting. I try to figure out like now, how do I take this to another space? That's right. And um, it's just funny because actually tonight, um, tonight Eastern Standard Time here in New York, ten o'clock, I'm going live. I'm changing the format of the podcast. It's going to be a call-in show now, where we're just on. It's going to be like, kind of like a radio show. We're just going to talk education. You know, oh, dope. And I tell you, one, one of the reasons for that, thank you. Um, it was an idea, it was an idea that came literally a few days ago. You know how you wait waiting for an answer for something and you just like, I'm just gonna wait, just be still. One of my brothers who is a principal, you know, and um, and I call all my all, all my all my um, colleagues who are who are principal because I know struggle. I'm like, you're all my brothers and sisters. Some of you might annoy the mess out of me sometimes for things you do. I know I'm in a struggle. And one of my brothers, he pulled me to the side at the conference and said, listen, what you doing with that podcast? I was like, yo, bro, I'm trying to figure that out right now because this is, the, like, I'm not a principal anymore. So I even call it a sneaker principal. He was like, no, leave it the way it is. But guess what? You did something on LinkedIn that changed the game for everybody. You gave everybody a space to start to think and talk about the things that we, were, we weren't willing to really think and talk about. He's right. like, what if you could you allow the podcast to be a space where people could just, if they want to call it anonymously and just talk about what they're going through in education, you know? And I was like, you know, that's a good point. 
So I'm the kind of person where I'm just like, listen, if it sounds like a good idea, I'm gonna do it. So this, so tonight, I'm, I'm kicking I'm kicking it off where um, uh, Monday, uh, Sundays, Monday, no, I'm sorry, Sundays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, ten o'clock. I'm gonna jump on. It's gonna be open live call show, and I'll present a topic. I'm just gonna talk about it. You know, um, I think it, that's something. This is space is very it's extremely needed because as a teacher, as a dean, as an AP, as a principal, on each of those levels. There's always those side closed door conversations. Uh, Kwame, I know you've had those conversations where you're like, bro, I, ca I can't. What's going on here? It's whispers, you know, but nobody's yes. having conversations and how do we move a system? So, so that's the thing with the, with the podcast now. I'm going in this new direction and um, it might be, I might be the only, I might be the only one there talking to myself. It's okay. But I think um, I, I really want to use my platform now to really have people talk. Like really talk and engage in conversation and dialogue on not just the surface stuff. Let's stop complaining about, oh, this principal this and this teacher that. No, let's talk about like, like we're doing here. What are the things that we need to do move forward? Like how That's do right. we impact the system? You know, we can't, we, we can't as, especially people of color, keep saying the system is jacked up. Then what are we doing about it? Like, what are we doing about it? And I, I really want to create that space. So so um, this this new iteration of uh, the, the Sneaker Principal podcast um, is it's uh, you know we'll see we'll see you know but I'm excited about it because again the one thing I do have now that I didn't really have before is freedom I don't work for the system anymore oh so, some, so something's about to come out a lot of stories yeah. about to come out now and and again you know. Um, this is this is this is for my peoples. This is how I look at it. You know, this is for my kids. This, this, you know, my kids are my kids are two and four right now. One day they're gonna be in the system. You know, I gotta make sure that the system is better than it is right now for them. That's right. Yeah, and that's that's inspiring, man. Um, you and my you and I off the air, we're gonna have to have some yeah, conversations some about this new iteration because I'm actually in the process of doing some retooling for my own podcast, switching up the format, everything. So another time we'll, we'll definitely have to have a conversation because that's, that's inspiring right there. Um, yeah. But Uche, man, thank you so much for coming on. Like this has been a dope conversation. We can keep going on and on um, for days because there's so much we could cover, but to close us out, I do have a lightning round question. Okay. And it's one that sometimes can stump our guests, but I think you'll do a pretty good job with this one. Okay. So if you have a if you have um dinner and you're inviting three guests, dead or alive, who would they be? Chino and Chibe. Things fall apart. The author of Things Fall Apart, fellow evil yep. man. And first um the first book that I read from cover to cover, you know. And I was a struggling reader when I was in primary four. I read that book and, um, and I've read that book like maybe 10 times over the course of my life. Wow. Um, Tupac Shakur. Uh, he had a profound impact on my life as a young man. And this whole notion, I mean, there's all these controversy around him, but the one thing he had that um, as a child, I didn't have, and I now exercise um, unapologetically, it's my voice. Mm. You know, that brother spoke and he spoke his truth. He, he was always right, 
but that level of boldness to say, no, this is who I'm going to be to me, to me was, it was just amazing. Yes. Um, so those two for sure. Number three fluctuates. I have so many names, people going through my mind right now, but right now in this moment, right now, if you had to tell me number three, right now, um, um, Emirus Joseph es um, es uh, Eskadon, um, Nipsey Hussle. Nipsey was just, man, I just went, I just got through his, his um, biography and, um, and as a, as a, as a, as a young man who grew up in Los Angeles and, and my mother, and he was a rolling, he was a rolling sixties crip. My mother's store was in that hood, rolling sixties. And, uh, and every, 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 where the, where the marathon store is, everything about it, like, I'm like, when people talk about it, I'm like, visually, I know exactly where it is. And then the, 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 the other thing too is him being African as well. His father was from, e from Eritrea, you know? So his, his story and how much of his Africanness impacted who, his success, like those things are very, like, like for me, I have so many, so many more questions for that young man. And it's unfortunate that, that, um, that uh, he passed the way he passed, you know? Except through a park, you know, I feel like when when you're doing something amazingly well and you're doing great things for your community, all of a sudden, you know, the forces that be, whatever, whether they're spiritual or, or, or flesh, come after you, you know. But um, I think it's our responsibilities to um, push those narratives and let uh, let our kids know. And you talked about earlier about how a lot of our stories are being erased and being transformed. There's also a lot of new stories that you can't erase, you can't transform. The two That's recent. Right. We have to make sure that those stories are being told as well. So, yes, it's funny. All three of mine are all passed away. And Chino Achibe was just—he—he—he—he he, he, he taught me about my evilness, my, my, about my tribe and my culture and who I am. So, yeah, and all three powerful men and their legacies still live on to this day. Yes. So, one last thing, of course, can't let you leave without telling people how they can connect with you on social media, but also how they can. Subscribe to the Sneaker Principal podcast because we we gotta make sure they they hit that up. Um, yep, definitely. Um, for the podcast, um, if you if you just type in, thankfully it's, it's just a unique name, and I'm the only one, so uh, there's no copycats. The Sneaker Principal. If you type that in, you're gonna find you're gonna find me all through. If you Google that, but um, then I have my website that um, which is thesneakerprinciple.com. Um. All my social media is there as well. And, um, but yeah, you know, and then just also my name, Uche Njoku, you know, it's funny now because when you type in Uche Njoku, I think I'm number one now on Google. So I, I, that's kind of dope. All right. There you go, man. Yeah. That's growth. Yes, sir. Yes, but, sir. Hey, but listen, brother, it's been a pleasure having you on. We might have to bring you back again for part two because there's still a whole lot of things that we didn't get a chance to cover, but. It's all good. It just gives us the anytime. opportunity to connect again. Anytime, anytime. And we got me. I know. I know. There's there's a time huge time difference. I gotta get you on on the on the podcast as well. You know. Oh yeah, so, for um, sure, man. Sure. Just say when, and we'll make it happen. All right, for sure. All right, man. You have a good rest yeah. of the day. All right, brother. Be well. Peace. All right, thank you. All right, good people. So we're about to end another episode of A Dane Tough Educators Live. And as always, wish you all good morning, good afternoon, good night wherever you are in the world. We're going to do this again another time. Peace out, y'all.
Thank you for listening to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram with the handle at Identity Talk for Educators Live. And that's a numeral four in the middle. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all other streaming platforms. We're always striving to provide you with quality content. So if you love what you heard tonight, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And to check out the video episodes of the podcast, you can visit our website at www.identitytalkforeducators.com. Thank you and have a great day.